My soul yearns, even faints. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. Now you take those three verbal statements. They're indicative of a spiritual longing within the psalmist. They represent to us the fact that this is not some skin-deep consideration. The psalmist here is not superficial in these matters. A spiritual hunger welling up from the longing of his heart. Today on the Songtime broadcast, we'll continue our summer psalm series. In this message from Alistair Begg, we'll look at Psalm 84, a song that teaches us to cultivate an appetite for worshiping God. Stay tuned for that. But first, we're going to be joined by a Christian apologist, Neil Shenvey, as we talk about how to develop a reasoned approach to Christianity. The many voices are coming together for that one message. I'm your host, Adam Miller. You're listening to Songtime Radio. I can't believe that our summer is almost over. It seems like it just began, and yet, even though it's been a hot summer, it is almost quickly over when our students will be going back to school. Whether they're high school students or graduates from last year or college students returning, this is a real concern within our sphere of influence, as the past several years have shown us many challenges that our young adults are facing out in the real world, as they're being questioned for the foundation of our faith. And even if they were raised in a Christian church, it does not mean that they aren't going to face challenges and even questions that they don't know the answers to. That's why our guest this week is Neil Shenvey. He's written a book called Why Believe? A Reasoned Approach to Christianity. It's a great resource and something to consider, especially as we get closer to uh, thinking about this new school year and what we really want to lay down as a foundation for the next generation. Neil, it's a great privilege to have you with us. Thank you so much for being a part of The Many Voices for that one message. Well, thank you for inviting me to speak, Adam. Why don't you get to start by telling us a little bit about yourself, because I actually think your background and your story is, is really going to be interesting to a lot of our listeners who are struggling with this question. So you did not grow up in a Christian home, so tell us a little bit about how you came to the faith. No, I, I had great parents, but I grew up in a non-Christian home. I went to uh, university at Princeton, and I would have called myself uh, spiritual, but not religious. And I, I would have probably called myself a Christian, to be honest, because, you know, we live in the U.S., we everyone here is Christian. If you're not a Muslim or you're not, so but I had very little knowledge of anything related to Christianity. I thought Jesus was basically a good moral teacher. I hadn't really. I read the Bible just as to say I did. I think when I was like eleven, I read it from cover to cover just because I was like, well, I can now say yes, I've read the Bible. I'm very intelligent, <laughs> uh, but I was not a, a believer. And uh, I but at Princeton, several things happened to sort of. Um, pave the way to my eventual acceptance of the gospel. Uh, one was that uh, as a freshman, I think, there was a book table in front of my dining hall that was handing out free books, and I got a copy of C.S. Lewis's Screwtape Letters. And I loved that book. It was really helpful to me. Uh, I met my future wife, Christina, during my senior year, and she was a missionary kid. And so that just meeting her and knowing her really helped me to understand what Christianity was about. And then we actually went out to graduate school at UC Berkeley, and that's where I eventually became a Christian, and I began attending church with her, and I saw very intelligent Christians, professors, academics, postdocs, and I had to take the gospel seriously. So all those three things led me to eventually uh, come to Christ. 
What's interesting about it, I think, is the fear that many of our listeners have with their children going off to, I mean, Ivy League schools and to, to really high academia, that their, their their faith is going to be undermined in some way. And you sort of had this completely different uh, path that led you to faith. So uh, kind of knowing that concern that our listeners are having, there is a risk, right? There is a challenge when you go to secular school because secularism is not going to be teaching the foundations of our faith. That's right. And it's, it's worth taking that threat seriously and therefore equipping your kids. Uh, in, of course, I'm not even saying you have to send your kids off to some secular university, but if you choose to, <clears throat> definitely equip them before they go. There's tons of great resources out there um, to help solidify their faith, to give them the reasons for um, knowing that the gospel is true and maintaining their confession throughout the college years. And I think really though you can't escape it in this culture, uh, keeping your kids within a sort of a Christian context and a Christian environment, it's not a guarantee that they're not going to uh, encounter these obstacles. So I'd say everybody should be equipping their kids to handle these objections to the faith. Yeah, it's not relegated to the universities anymore. This is pervasive. It's it's in every culture. It's in the friend groups. It's in online, where, wherever they're uh, at online. So this is something that is actually pretty pervasive, especially with many of the prominent Christian leaders who have uh, deconverted over the past, uh, you know, several years. This is something that has been an influence in their life from from very early on. So this is a real question that every parent needs to be aware of, but also that teenagers need to be able to build a foundation understand. As you did, uh, you evaluated these uh, questions and concerns and took them seriously because you had uh, a whole community of people that were taking it seriously. Right. And I think well, one of the things that my book aims to do is to show that in- that Christianity is intellectually credible. I wanted to write a book that not only could, um, could students read it, high school students, college students, people outside of uh, the university, but I wanted to write a book that they could hand to their professors, mm. and they'd feel comfortable giving this book to people at the highest levels of scholarship, and it, and it you know, has footnotes in it. Uh, it, it, it. It interacts heavily with prominent non-Christian and atheist secular scholars in the sciences, in uh, biblical studies, and so it's clear that I, ha- I tried to do my homework. So again, if you hand it to someone who's a very prominent scholar, they're not going to read it and say, this is like... This is just simplistic. It's 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 made. It's written at an eighth grade level. I, I want it to be accessible and yet to have some kind of intellectual heft. So again, that that was my goal, and I think it seems to come across that way. People people that have read it have said it. You can tell that you're a scientist by training. It's very systematic, very logical, very evidence focused. Hmm. I, I think that you and I had completely different track records. I was grow, I grew up in a Christian faith. I grew up in the church, and uh, I I kind of adapted a lot of those propaganda type messages that were very mm-hmm. winsome and cra- crafty, but within a closed circle. So my a lot of my early arguments for the faith were were very not critical thinking. They were mm-hmm. very inclusive to our group and kind of uh, insular in that way. So we have completely different kind of paths to the same. Point. Point, but I think you're absolutely right where critical thinking is so important because now I think young people that are searching for the truth are, are very much scrutinizing uh, to a high degree what is being said. Yeah, and I, it's, that's why it's so important for parents to um, inoculate their students against the best secular arguments. Um, 
gone are the days when you can just hope that your kids won't encounter. It'll keep them sheltered. They're not going to be exposed to these sort of pathogens. Well, that's gone. The internet has dissolved yeah. all of that, even the ability, even in theory, to keep your home totally protected from the quote unquote worldly outside influences. That's not going to, that never was really the case, but today, especially it's impossible. And so it's important for um, parents not to just give their kids superficial answers. You do not want them to first encounter uh, arguments for uh, you know the, the the fabrication of the gospel stories. It's all it's all myth. It's all a legend. You don't want them to first encounter that as a freshman in college. That is a, is a recipe for disaster. You want them to have heard that claim, you know, in seventh, eighth grade, ninth grade, and then be able to answer that. If they get just they get bowled over if the first time they have ever even heard of that objection is when they're in religion one hundred and one. We've been talking with Dr. Neil Shenvey about his book called Why Believe? A Reasoned Approach to Christianity. It's a great resource and an apologetic approach to how we can answer the tough questions that that we might be facing as well as young adults going out into the world. It's a great resource. You can find out more information and get a copy as a thank you for your support to the Songtime Ministry. When you write to us at Songtime Radio, P.O. Box 100, Barnstable, Massachusetts, 02630, or give us a call. It's 508-362-7070. Well, today we are continuing our Summer Psalm series, and in this message from Alistair Beck, we're going to be looking at Psalm 84. Here's a psalm that describes how our soul longs to worship God. Now, the truth is, that's probably not the, the greatest longing of our soul. There are many things that we long for, but worship probably doesn't take the top 10 percentile. And unfortunately, this is something that we don't experience nearly enough. And yet, the Psalms are meant to instruct how we ought to feel, how we ought to measure our emotions. And this is something we need to cultivate. And in today's message, we'll talk about how to cultivate an appetite for worship as we continue this Summer Psalm series this week with Alistair Begg. I went to the doctor with somebody this week, it wasn't for myself, but with another, and I noticed the doctor did all kinds of things that seemed to be at least interesting. Made the individual close their eyes and hop on their right leg, and then close their eyes and hop on their left leg, walk down the line in the carpet, put their hands out in front, do all manner of things. What was he doing? He was taking very specific checks regarding the health of that little body. And one of them related directly to appetite. For physicians know that our appetite is some indication of how things are going with us. I want to suggest to you that out of Psalm 84, we have three identifying features of a good spiritual appetite. And the first identifying feature, and you can pinpoint them incidentally, with the word blessed, which comes three times in the psalm, first of all in verse 4, then in verse 5, then in verse 12, the man or woman whose spiritual appetite is good will first of all be found praising with God's people. That's the fourth verse. Blessed are those who dwell in your house. They are ever praising you. Will you notice that in verse 2, the verbs are very graphic. My soul yearns, even faints. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. Now, you take those three verbal statements. They're indicative of a spiritual longing within the psalmist. 
they represent to us the fact that this is not some skin-deep consideration. The psalmist here is not superficial in these matters. A spiritual hunger welling up from the longing of his heart. Ask yourself this question as I do. What's the longing of your life? What do you yearn after? His appetite and his praise may be discovered by noticing, first of all, its location. Now, we must understand this within the context, historically, of the psalmist. His place is in the temple courts. Turn back for a moment to Psalm 42 and Psalm 43, and we see this expressed clearly. The psalmist says in 42, "...for those things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I used to go with the multitude leading the procession to the house of God." with shouts of joy and thanksgiving among the festive throng. Psalm 43 and the fourth verse, Then will I go to the altar of God, to God my joy and my delight. I will praise you with a harp, O God my God. So here in the first four verses, the psalmist is exiled from that experience. He is distanced from the opportunity to be where he really loves to be. And he longs to be back in the action. He says, when I think about your dwelling place, O Lord Almighty, I love it there. I love being there. I'm jealous of sparrows. I'm jealous of little birds that today, as I think of them, will be nestling right up in the rafters of that lovely, holy place. How I long to be in that place. There's no question about his appetite. There's no question about his hunger. It is given testimony to in the words that he speaks. Incidentally, this joy in the presence of God, in the place of praise, localized in the temple experience in the Old Testament, is a joy which is quite unfamiliar to those who are merely superficial. Turn with me to the prophecy of Amos. It's not a contrast in attendance, it's a contrast in appetites. Both the psalmist in 84 and this guy in Amos 8 are prepared to attend, but it's the appetite that differs. And this is what these people say. When will the new moon be over that we may sell grain and the Sabbath be ended that we may market wheat? In other words, when will the worship be over? When can we be done with being in this place so that we may then go out from here and do that upon which we've set our hearts? Both have the experience of being in the place. We are distinguished from one another by the appetite of our hearts. A very real test is to ask ourselves when I am absent from the place of praise, is there a longing which arises in my heart? You know, some of us who have the privilege of worship here week by week, it is possible for us to become so familiar with everything that in point of fact a period of exile would do as good. Because is it not true that often in exile we appreciate our homeland even more? Because while we're there, we grow familiar with it, and familiarity breeds contempt. And so a little spell away reveals to us what we really love. And sometimes God chooses to set us aside, to take us away, to teach us that our problems are often arising from an appetite that has grown less and less responsive. And we've become fault finders, and we've become nitpickers, 
and we began to complain about this and about that and about the next thing, and there's no yearning for God left. There's no hunger for his word. There's no longing for praise. Not so with this man. He says, oh, I long for it. I long to be there. The application is clear. The hungry heart yearns, faints, cries out to be amongst God's people in the experience of worship. And when you or I are voluntarily absent from God's people over a prolonged period of time, it says far more about our spiritual appetite than it ever does about the preacher's ability or the style of the worship or whatever it might be. Don't think that because I have to be here every Sunday morning, I don't know that experience. You know the story of the mother waking her son up in the morning for church. She says to him, come on now, John, it's time you were up for church. He rolls over and looks at her and says, I'm not going to church today. I don't want to go today. She says, well, I think it's very important that you're there. And he says, I don't see why. Eventually he says to him, come on now, John, you're 35 years old. And she says, and also, you're the pastor of the church. Doesn't that mean anything? (laughs) So I am able to distinguish in my own heart between the call of duty and the call of joy. I do not always walk here with the same spirit. I do not always come here because I'm a real person in the real world. And I know what I'm talking about. There is a distinction in the realm of appetite where God's people long to be together. It's appetite. How's your appetite? What are the things that you get excited about? What are the things that you're looking forward to this week? The truth is, it probably hasn't popped up on your radar to prepare even now on a Monday for next Sunday, to anticipate, to look forward to that. But quite honestly, that's the way our our weeks ought to be, longing to get to Sunday where we can gather together with other believers so that we can worship God together. You know, this is a challenge in Psalm 84, and yet one that we all fall short on, uh, even pastors, as we heard from Alistair Begg in that last joke in his message. It's even difficult for pastors at times to get up and get to the church and do the work that they've been called to do. You know, one of the things that I love about Psalm 84 is its inscription. It says it's a song of the sons of Korah. There's a lot of history there, and we'll continue to unpack it over the course of this week, but Korah was one of the rebellious priests that staged a rebellion against Moses in the wilderness. And because of that, he was sentenced to death, but his children were going to be exiled from the community, no longer allowed to serve in the temple. And yet they humbled themselves and they asked for forgiveness and they begged to be able to have just the the crumbs of worship, to be able to serve as janitors in the temple. And that sort of reminds me of the story of the Canaanite woman and the story of, of Jesus as he, he goes to her and she asks for the crumbs from the table and God rewards her. It's such a beautiful picture. But here, the sons of Korah were given the privilege of serving in the temple again, not as priests, not as those who would function in the, the sacrifices and the teaching and the reading, but as those who would serve by cleaning up the sacrifices, really doing the, the lowest potum, uh, uh, totem jobs the ones that no one else wanted to do. And yet, after being uh, uh, unable to worship in the temple for years in exile, they longed to be back in the temple. Even doing the most menial uh, tasks, they longed for that form of worship. 
Now, I don't know what that says about you and me, that it's hard for us to even consider going to church on a Sunday morning when these guys were the ones cleaning up after everyone and they could not wait to get back to worship. Are you longing for Sunday as they longed to worship God? Uh, Better is one day in your court than a thousand elsewhere. What a beautiful psalm and hopefully one that captures your heart and imagination. If we've been able to encourage you, I hope that you will be an encouragement to us. You can write to us at Songtime Radio, PO Box 100, Barnstable, Massachusetts, 02630, or give us a call. It's 508-362-7070. You can also head over to our website at songtime.com, or you can look us up on social media. Don't forget to tune in again tomorrow. We'll continue our study as we're looking at Psalm 84 and asking a very important question. Are you excited about worshiping God? Unless our hearts were tuned in praise, we were present, but that was all. For we're not here to get points for attendance. We are here to give praise and adoration to God. On behalf of everyone here at Songtime and our late founder, Dr. John DeBrine, who has always encouraged you to grow in grace so that you won't groan in disgrace, we want to thank you for listening. From Cape Cod, I'm Adam Miller with our theme verse, Psalm 85, 4 and 7. Restore us again, O God of our salvation, and put away your indignation toward us. Show us your steadfast love, O Lord, and grant us your salvation.